1776? We know why, right? And why Eugene Debs saying Jefferson and Lincoln? You know, why? Well, I think only the working class believes in bourgeois values. The ruling class has abandoned bourgeois values a long time ago. Right? Mm -hmm. And that goes for the capitalist class, it also goes for the intelligentsia. Yeah. Right? It goes for the, the, the bourgeois intellectuals, the, you know, intellectual elite. A long time ago, right? I would say in Marx's own lifetime. The bourgeoisie and intellectuals and, you know, surely politicians and statesmen abandoned bourgeois values. So where, where, where are the bourgeois values? Who believes in the bourgeois values? The workers. All right. Welcome, Civilization Media viewers. It's the Catron Zone uh, with uh, the, the last Marxist and genius. Uh, hat tip to Reed Kane, Chris Catrone. Um, Chris, you contacted me, and you know uh, ahead of time. Usually, I have to reach out to you and say, "Hey, what are we going to talk about?" But you had uh, a suggestion this time around that you wanted to talk about Javier uh, Malay, uh, the Brazilian, um, wait, Argentinian uh, president who was recently at Davos. Are you there? Argentinian. Uh, yeah, Argentinian. Yeah, I said Brazilian, then corrected myself. Um, so what was it about yes. uh, his his lecture to the, the, the movers and shakers at Davos that you thought was worth commenting on as a Marxist? Um, I thought that his association of socialism with the state and his positive claims regarding capitalism and freedom, but also wealth, um, I thought were uh, a good kind of entryway into problems in the self-conception of the socialist left today. Right. Um, one can of we meet his? Can we meet his anti-socialism? You know. Mm-hmm. I um. I saw a clip on a on a show called Do Dissidents. <clears throat> this is a a couple of good guys who are are trying to be critical of the Democratic Party um, and maintain a dissident stance towards capitalism and and the current social situation. Um, but when they saw uh, um, Millet's speech, where he was um, uh, giving it to the people of Davos. Uh, they kind of seem to misunderstand from my perspective what was going on because they, they what they said was something like, um, oh, the right wing is saying that uh, he's really given it to the socialists at Davos, but, you know, he's really speaking to his own here. He's a neoliberal. They're neoliberals. They're all billionaires. He loves them as a Randian. He thinks they're the heroes of the, of the world, of the age. So, I, I don't see why anyone would think that he's out of his element here or that he's particularly talking them down or, or trashing the people at Davos. They're all on the same team. Um, what would you make of that kind of response? Well, I mean, I think he pitches it that way. Uh, he basically says, 
you guys don't feel guilty about being the wealthy capitalists, right? Because mm. it's your activity that's saving the world. And so don't, don't allow yourselves to adopt a kind of guilty perspective with regard to what you do. You don't have anything to apologize for, right? That's, that's the kind of criticism of the Davos people. Um, he was saying you don't have to be socially responsible you don't have to adopt any perspectives of social justice because what you're doing is already socially justified and socially responsible. You're, you are doing what society needs you to do. Right. And so why did people on the right interpret him to be attacking the people at Davos, do you think? Sure, because um, – well, okay, so the, the, the populist right – Mm -hmm. would be unhappy with Davos and they'd be happy with Millet, you know, telling them off. Right. And, uh, you know, because basically the idea is that the ruling class is selling out the people and the way that they're doing so is by uh, going along with this kind of state repression of the people. And that the, you know, the ruling class is sort of imposing its will on the people. And, you know, in some ways, I guess the right populists are saying that the people are being made to pay for the guilty feelings of the ruling class. The, the guilty feelings or, um, or the crimes of the ruling class? Because there's often a lot of charges of corruption or crony capitalism. Sure. Sure. You know, that come along with that. Right. But the idea is something like, um, you know, yes, we ruined the world. We destroyed the environment. We, we created this climate change. But now we're going to make the working class, like, give up its standard of living to pay for that. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and you have to sort of, you know, I watch Fox News. I know the sort of right populist mindset. Right? And their attitude is... Um, that the ruling class is bad insofar as they're against the people. Mm -hmm. And the demonstration of that is look at all the great reset, look at all these plans that they're concocting for the people, for the people to adopt a, a lower standard of living, that they're all going to be drinking soylent and living in little cubicles and, you know, dependent on, you know, the wind and the sun, you know. So when the winds die down and the sun goes behind the clouds, then the people just have to deal with a blackout. Whereas the ruling class will have their little personal nuclear power plants in, in their yachts and in their uh, mansions, you know, they'll be fine. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But the people will have to be these austere peasants, Right. Mm -hmm. Just because the rulers feel guilty and the rulers have decided that, you know, having a burger is bad. And so they're going to steal the, all the all the ground meat from the people. And they might just do that by making it so expensive at the grocery store. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so. Uh, what do you think? So what is um, someone like? Well, what do you think the solution is? First of all, do you think there's some truth to the idea that the policies being put together by the bankers and the people at Davos uh, that might come under the heading of the Great Reset 
really are just about a, a guilty conscience, is it just sort of an empty-minded anti-consumerism that they're uh, uh, gr grasping in an almost quasi-religious way, or are they actually trying to address a, a real threat uh, by demanding certain a certain level of redistribution and also austerity uh, in order to make sure that the majority of people can survive and that 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 it's not a inhumane crisis. Right. So, okay. So, you know, we Marxists, right. We're mm -hmm. like, Oh, the ruling class, the capitalists and Oh, they're just profit driven and whatever. Well, no, these are people, right. And they're pe people are living at a certain time in history and they want society to continue and humanity to continue and humanity to flourish. And they have their ideas about what that might be. And obviously, if the planet is rendered uninhabitable due to climate change, or if it causes millions or billions of people to be displaced, and especially poor people, that's going to be a horrible situation. It's going to make people suffer. It's going to be politically destabilizing, socially destabilizing, you know. And so they're just thinking very technocratically. They're like, okay, what are we going to do, right? If the oceans rise and if the, you know, temperatures increase and if the polar ice caps melt, then we're going to be dealing with all these displaced peasants at our door, right? In mm -hmm. the metropolitan world. And, you know, yeah, we're going to have to let them in and the workers are just going to have to accept it. And, but maybe we can, you know, mitigate that. Maybe we can prevent that from happening. And maybe if, if you know, people stop driving their F-150 pickup trucks, you know, and stop, like, doing donuts with their muscle cars, then, you know, we might be able to prevent, you know, the hordes of, of brown people from washing up on our shores. Mm -hmm. You know? I mean, they're just thinking very practically, and scientifically, right? And again, like mm -hmm. technocratically. And, you know, they're very aware of the fact that they can have an effect on policy. They can, you know, um, you know, they have access to the politicians insofar as the politicians are responsible and not these populist, you know, demagogues who won't listen to them and who will mobilize the people against them and cause trouble. Right. I mean, they just, you know, I mean, from our perspective, I think what we have to say is they're just assuming the continuation of capitalism. Right. And that doesn't mean like profit margins, but it does mean like basically society as it is, what trajectory is it on and how do you manage that? And it, from our perspective, we would say, well, it's not going to be just like that, right? There are going to be economic and, you know, technological upheavals that are unanticipated. Um, you know, history is going to throw a curveball at you. And, and capitalism is not going to be something that can be just sort of successfully managed in this way at any level, not at the level of like, you know, money prices and, and capital flows, finance, you know, credit and debt relations, right? Not, not at the level of like social practices, like on the ground, like what people do and how people vote with their feet, right? Mm -hmm. and, and do some things and not other things, you know, that society is going to be more intractable than the state 
then the bureaucracy, then the technocracy, then capitalist management, then these big capitalist corporations can get together and 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 fix or or handle. It's going to elude their control. Um, and so again, to them, you know, they're like, well, as long as we don't have any irresponsible politics, as long as we don't have any demagogical politicians riling up the people to do the wrong thing, you know, then we can kind of handle this. We can fix this. You know, as long as nobody interferes, everything's fine, right? Our mm-hmm. point is, even if they could do that, it's not it's not going to work out just as they think, right? And you know, a lot of, you know, the right, I guess, in the neoliberal era, I mean, people of our generation, right, Doug? So mm-hmm. I look at people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, the people who would have been in the college Republicans when we were in college, right? You know, these kind of nerdy guys who have grown up and are now like, you know, big politicians and unintended consequences. Remember that new right thing? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, the welfare state sounds nice, but what about the unintended consequences? What about the fact that it destroys the black family and at X, Y, and Z, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, they have a point. Oh, no, <laughs> right? I that's, totally that's, down that's, with the, that. Right? I, I think as someone who got... Mm-hmm. As someone who got into guys. Marxism around the economic crisis, mm-hmm. the the idea of unintended consequences was big for me because it was like, okay, it kind of was a way of saying you can have massive profitability and a, and a massive increase in your productive capacity and still go into an economic crisis. You know, it, it doesn't take bad policy for that to happen. It could just be the co- unintended consequence of the the way the system is set up and that the same thing could happen on the level of the wel- welfare state or, or affirmative action. You know, these things right. can have the opposite effect than what they're intended what's to intended. do. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I think that people have gotten sick of that kind of Reaganite or Thatcherite kind of mantra. And mm-hmm. so they're just like, no, we have to try to do something, right? So like, you know, again, Javier Millet, like, he's just one of these guys. He's like, you know, he's our age, literally, literally mm-hmm. our age. And I feel mm-hmm. like he was educated through the same kind of ideological, cultural universe. Although in Argentina, you know, you have the Peronists, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, so you have this kind of history of like socialism, that's kind of a little bit fascistic, you know, a little bit like Madonna did her stint. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Right. As Eva mm-hmm. Peron. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's kind of like, well, has that worked out? And Argentina has been in crisis. Um, and, you know, and he's just saying, look, the socialism just hasn't worked out. And how much more evidence do we need of that? And we don't need like a refurbished version of it. And we don't need it coming from like well-intentioned rich people, right? The the rich capitalist elites should just do what they do. You know, they should just try to make, I think he says, try to make a good product for a good price, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, make a profit. And in the end, it will, it will benefit us all. I mean, his historical view is interesting because, um, you know, he has a kind of curious notion that, human standard of living wealth was static for thousands of years. And then it only Mm -hmm. takes off with the industrial revolution in 1800. 
And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, that's not quite right, actually. Right. So Adam Smith, you know, writing The Wealth of Nations, publishing it in 1776, observes mm-hmm. the fact that there actually has been an appreciable increase in the standard of living of the working class for the previous couple of hundred years. And he also sees that that's the case in the northern North American colonies, right? Mm-hmm. That they have a higher standard of living, actually, than, than, than the working class in, in Britain does at the time. Mm-hmm. And that that's due to, again, a more free kind of bourgeois social relations uh, operating. And so, but it is curious that Millet kind of points rather to the Industrial Revolution as the key to that. And, you know, he has some basis. I mean, there are there's statistical evidence for that. And also that it's increased since then. In other words, that the growth rate has only gone up since then and even increased at a faster rate. And he points to something that I know that I pointed out to you in one of our conversations months ago now about the period from like 1980 to 2008 being the largest, deepest increase in wealth in ever in history. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Davos people would say, you know, this is the period of the greatest um, decrease in poverty that the world has ever seen. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of that's down to this. China, right? A lot of it's down to China. In other words, skews the statistics globally. In other words, because of mm-hmm. China, it raises the statistics globally. But it, it's, it's more than that. It's also Africa. Um, it's also mm-hmm. India. Um, and so, you know, it's the green revolution, mm-hmm. not meaning ecology, environmentalism, but literally new agricultural technology. Right. Right. So it, uh, agricultural uh, productivity has increased a great deal. And, you know, it's just become cheaper and more efficient to produce a lot more food than it was. Um, and so that's gotten rid of basically famines. You know, the only famines that have existed have existed for political reasons like war, um, mm-hmm. you know, since the 80s. So, um, you know, it's a, but that's purely technical, technological. And of course, there's a downside to that. And of course, um, it's eaten into, you know, the, the right wing people made a big deal of the Native American woman from an Amazonian tribe, like blessing the people at Davos. Mm-hmm. Through some strange ritual, they were like, oh, look at how weird the rich Davos people are. They do this strange Native American ritual. And I'm like, yeah, that's not that's strange. She's blessing them for saving her rainforest, basically. She's saying, thank you. <laughs> you know, you're fighting to save my rainforest. Uh, because, you know, that's what the agricultural revolution has looked like, the green revolution. It's looked like the uh, destruction of the rainforest for farming in in a place like Brazil. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so there's been a downside to the green revolution for sure, environmentally. Um, you know, I think we forget about that, that the destruction of the rainforest is, is part of the mix because that's the big, um, scrubber of carbon dioxide, Mm. right. Um, is, you know, the, 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 the plants, you know, and the intense, uh, vegetation of the rainforest as, you know, that that's what scrubs the uh, CO2 out of the atmosphere. And so if we get rid of that while we keep pumping out CO2 through burning fossil fuels, then, right, we get this imbalance. Um, And so, you know, again, it's kind of like, you could look at it technically. I mean, I actually think that capitalism will solve the climate crisis. I do. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so I don't think that we need socialism to save the planet. No, the capitalism is going to do that. Um, mm -hmm. But again, at, at what cost? And I think that the right, you know, is mobilizing this fear that part of the cost is going to be the destruction of the standard of living of the working class. Mm -hmm. Right. In the metropolitan countries, especially, but really kind of everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I think that there's that, that, that that's warranted. And I do think that, you know, the Davos people, but also people like DSAers, like AOC, you know, having children is selfish, right? There's mm -hmm. a degrowth perspective. There is a degrowth perspective. And that means degrowth in population. And it also means degrowth in consumption. Mm -hmm. Right? And, you know, yeah. take our cars away, you know, they're going to get rid of our autonomy and our mobility, you know, they're going to lock us in these cities. I mean, the Great Reset, COVID, you know, the idea that like, oh, look at how good for the environment COVID was. If we just lock down the population, that will save the environment. And, you know, what it really means is if only people could adopt the, the lower consumption habits of the COVID lockdown era, you know, that would that would do the trick. Right. So how do we institutionalize this? And that's not a conspiracy theory. That's not paranoia. I mean, literally, people did say that. They did. They are like, this is a model for what needs to happen. I recall, and I think it was the late 90s, listening to a lecture <clears throat> on tape, but it may have been like found it online. I'm not sure. But uh, so it may have been later. But um, of Noam Chomsky discussing uh, the prospects for freedom in the future mm -hmm. and he pointed to climate change as one of the great threats for personal to personal freedom oh yeah freedom. good uh-huh but but the way what he I'm said sure he's was, forgotten that now no no but what he said at the time was if we don't do something make the republicans do something um and I think it may have been, or the, or the Clintons. It was either like the Democrats or the Republicans. One of you know Clinton or Bush. Um, <clears throat> uh, do something. We may reach a point where we will have to accept authoritarian rule, just in order to survive. We will sure. have to accept, um, you know, drastic austerity measures just in order to survive. <clears throat> that was what he said. So we need to. Yeah, what's surviving? Well, you know, I, I that's a good question. Um, Soil and green, reproducing Soil the green population, <laughs> reproducing the population. <clears throat> I think would be. Youth it's Asia. funny that, that that that. Have you ever had Soylent, by the way? I have, have not. Ever, I, there I, I, there I, are there are lines that I draw. I, I, I have, I have a, a lot of millennial things, but not that I did it. I have, I have a few, there was a time where I thought, well, you know, I've struggled with my weight. So I thought, well, if I oh, have I was this powder, say key to weight loss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so I'll just regulate exactly how many calories I'm getting because I'll just drink this drink and Measure that's all it. I'll do. And yeah. then I just found after a while, I, you know, I would end up binging real food at the end. It was not good. It was not a good. Your body doesn't like that anywhere. Right. Um, 
Anyway, maybe I'll cut that part out. But the uh, you're on but any, you're on the west coast, though, so people are into all these like um, like detox rituals. They like purging yeah. themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We like all and, sorts uh, of crazy things. But I, I want to like, say, uh, like the left that I remember, and probably the left as it is today. Although today everything's a little fragmented and crazy, but um, would find your claim that capitalism can solve the climate crisis, that we could have a technological fix to be barbaric and, and deeply reactionary and, and quasi-fascist, because obviously we cannot simply continue to let capitalism run amok and destroy the planet, and you're advocating for the capitalist class when you say that kind of propaganda. I'm just, just you know channeling my ad busters 1995 uh self so what would how would you respond to that allegation because i know we're going to get it right i i feel like the capitalist class you know like i get the heebie-jeebies whenever class is raised because i'm like yeah no like i hate talking about class because i just am working class and so i feel like the people who hate the capitalist class are just the petty bourgeoisie who resent the fact that they're not in charge and that there are people wealthier than them. Whereas I feel like, okay, I'm just going to have to deal with whatever new standard of living my betters decide we have to live by, right? Like I'm just a worker. And so I'm just going to do whatever, you know, I'm going to live on whatever. I'm going to buy the latest thing that they say I should use to survive. I'm going to have to accept the wages that, that they, that they feel like they can afford. Um, that's just life. You know, I'm a peasant. Ultimately, you know, the gods will decide everything. Um, and so, you know, uh, but I don't think that that's the problem really. Right. And I think that this is where, um, you know, Malay's point comes in, right. Which is that it's not out of the altruistic intentions of the capitalists that society is free and that um, people's lives are improved, right? Right. So, mm-hmm. and in fact, you know, when when you're depending on that, then you're sacrificing freedom, but in a kind of spurious way, meaning that you know it's not like you can trade. It's you know, can you know, if you trade freedom for security, you get neither. Right. Right. And, you know, just this basic libertarian stuff. And I know that we're supposed to all, you know, be done with all this, you know, post-neoliberalism. We're supposed to uh, burn Ayn Rand's books or something and, you know, um, forget Milton Friedman or what have you. Um, And, you know, and I kind of feel like, well, but but wait a second. And what I was going to say about, like, capitalism solving its problem through authoritarian austerity. Mm -hmm. Well, and that, you know, we're going to have to accept some barbarism. That already happened. I always like to say the end of the world already happened. The destruction Mm -hmm. of the environment, that's behind us. It's over. Like that ship has sailed a long time ago. It's it's done. Now, post-World War II, high consumption capitalism was barbarism, Mm -hmm. was barbarism. And the working class basically was forced to accept higher consumption to save capitalism. 
You could look at it that well, way. Yeah. You could say they traded like the slum tenement working class community in the city for social atomization and existential death in the suburbs. Existential death? Yeah. What do you mean? You mean Spiritual like meaninglessness? Spiritual. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, existential, like what's the meaning of life? You know, Revolutionary Road, the movie, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that the working you know, I don't know. Do you think that's you think that was a working class problem? It's it, I I remember all the anti-consumerist, anti-suburbs movies and books and TV shows and we always see it through the so-called middle class, but it's the working right. class. I mean, again, I am working class. My parents mm -hmm. were born in Brooklyn. And their parents moved them out to the suburbs. As working class, they were union workers, nine to five union workers, literally like factory workers, like construction workers. Mm -hmm. I had uh, all, all four grandparents worked. The women worked. They were mm -hmm. unionized secretaries. They worked. Right. One grandfather was like um, a worker, like an, elect an electrician for a military contractor. The other was a construction worker for the municipality. Like, you know, he did, did the roads and things like that, you know, paved the roads. Mm -hmm. So they are working class people and they had a wage that allowed them to buy a house in the suburbs and a small house. And, you know, they considered that to be a better life than what they could have had in Brooklyn. Um, oh, than yeah. They were, you know, but I don't know. Like, in other words, when I look at my parents, and my, you know, the baby boomer generation, my parents' generation, as opposed to my grandparents, who were the World War II generation. I just think, well, you know, is this a better life for them? Did they give their children a better life than they had as children growing up? Right. In other words, the working class community that they were in in Brooklyn in the 30s, you know, the Great mm -hmm. Depression. Right. How bad was it? Was it bad? And, you know, the dysfunctionality of my family, the dysfunctionality of a whole generation of families, of working class families, would that have been mitigated at all by living in a more like extended family type working class community milieu? Rather than all being like, you know, disintegrated into suburban households and everyone living their own private family, nuclear family meltdown drama each in their own house, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, upstairs, downstairs, across the hall in the, in the tenement building, in mm -hmm, the apartment mm -hmm. building. Right. Um, you know, I'm just saying, because, you know, I, I won't forget, um, you know, I can't forget the fact that people living under those conditions were, you know, also wanted things like socialism, like working class people at that time were much more organized for socialism than they became in the fifties and sixties. And, in our mm -hmm. lifetime. And, you know, and I just think, okay, this trade-off, right? Um, was it a good thing? You know, is this progress? I, you know, yeah. I'm a Frankfurt person. I don't think it's progress. I don't. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not no. anti-consumerist. I don't like the whole 60s anti-consumerism. And I certainly don't like our generation's anti-consumerism. Because I feel like our generation was an austerity generation. In other words, mm -hmm. we did have to adopt a lower standard of living than our parents. And right. what we were going to celebrate that as like anti-consumerism, it's like, fuck you. Right. You know? Yeah, that's one thing that the, the millennials and the Zoomers don't understand about Gen X. So we got here first. 
as far as yeah. you know having lowered expectations and <clears throat> we had all that's right our whole generation was defined around being worse off than our parents that was the, yeah. the, the big thing about being gen x um but <clears throat> as to um the trade-off you, when you say it was a trade-off i mean how did it work didn't it work basically ah, like the conditions in the cities became so dire that people would move out or was is was that what happened or was it that the suburbs were cheap and they could afford it and have a higher standard of living by moving out um which which way or both which which way did I would it go? say it's both I mean of course it's not exactly I mean it was masterminded to a certain degree yeah. it also wasn't masterminded right and then we know from like redlining we know discriminatory practices in terms of like credit lines offered for mortgages like how was it affordable in other mm -hmm. words i always like to say okay people became because the left will say oh the working class was depoliticized by becoming property owners and this is the mm -hmm. model and i'm like but did they own property no they own debt right right and so it's not like they became property owners. I mean, maybe they did think of themselves as property owners and as stakeholders in that sense, you know, mm -hmm. kind of avant la lettre neoliberalism. But I feel like, well, surely though, so they were like, well, yeah, it's like building equity. So we have this thing, equity. So the difference between renting and owning is, yeah, rent, you're just paying rent and owning, yeah, you're paying a mortgage, but at least you're building equity. Mm-hmm. Right, that whole notion. And yeah, yeah. Of course, no, it's a big deal. That was like a mantra. It's become important now for our generation because now that our parents paid off their homes, we can inherit their homes as retirement funds mm -hmm. because we were not able to save for our retirement because of our lower wages than they were. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So they were right. able to pay off mortgages and have a retirement fund in a way that we don't. And so thank God they have equity in, in their property because otherwise we would be on the street as right. senior citizens, right? And so again, I just feel like if you look at the dynamics of history and you look at like capitalism, capitalism can be all sorts of things. It can be high consumption, it can be low consumption. It, it, it can be all sorts of things. And so, and, and capitalist barbarism can be those things, those different things. Right. So we, we have a picture in our mind. And also with the left has a kind of narrative that I, I always feel like, let's think again about that. Like that narrative. No, I'm not sure about that. Mm -hmm. Like, is this what happened? Was the working class bought off? Were they sent out to the suburbs to become property owners? Were they atomized? I mean, I was leaning in that direction earlier in what I was saying. Were they disorganized because they were atomized as consumers in the suburbs? Sure. Yes. But also, so what are we supposed to do? We're all supposed to move from the suburbs back to the city. And then we're going to have some socialist utopia because we're going to get organized. Do, it, do what the, the people at Davos do, Chris. Do what right? they do. Move to Park <laughs> Slope. Buy yourself a $15 million townhouse. Take up a couple of lovers and, and be part of a polyamorous thruple. Write a memoir about how much hell that was and make another million dollars or, or two or three. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But Sorry. again, I think See, that's, that's I, my, that's my petty bourgeois side. 
right now. That, that, sure. That. Well, that's your resentment <laughs> for the more successful petty bourgeoisie, right? Right. Um, in other words, you're thinking of the book contract that you never got, a book contract that would have actually paid, right? right. Um, and, uh, you know, but I'm thinking, okay, well, what is the DSA's program for the working class? Right? I think that they are for reurbanization, and that means shrinking the carbon footprint, right? Maybe you let the suburbs get overgrown with weeds so that you reduce the amount of cement and asphalt right, which is a big, you know, contributor to climate destruction um, and global warming even, right? And so I just think, okay, all sorts of cockamamie ideas have been floated in our lifetime regarding, like, environmental catastrophe. It's been there since mm -hmm. we were kids. Yeah. Right? Um, and I feel like I am sympathetic to the right. The right is like, you know, these climate maniacs have been declaring the end of the world for the last 50 years and it hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's like, yeah, but this time it's for real. It's like, no. Right. <laughs> so the, the right wing populists are like, no, this is all just what they, what they want to use to scare us into submitting. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're, Thinking it, they're, they, you know, even the right wing populism, right? It's not about the working class. It's about the middle class, right? In other words, they're saying PMC, don't go with that mm -hmm. like progressive liberal Democrat that Davos scene. Go with us instead, <laughs> right? That's mm -hmm. what that they're, they're making the pitch to the PMC. They're not, you know, the working class. No, nobody cares about the working class. Nobody. Well, Sora really Abomari seems to care about the working class. You know, you, you talk to him in New York at Columbia. He He's pitching to at least the existing institutions of labor. Maybe They hate Millet over at uh, Compact, by the way. They really hate Millet yeah. over at Compact. And, uh, of course, they would. And I feel like, yeah, but still the working class is some kind of object. It's not a subject. It's an object. Meaning, like, mm -hmm. yes, yeah, Sorab mm -hmm. thinks that the workers would be, would be better off unionized because a unionized working class would be able to push its demands and you get better policy, right? He's still thinking very technocratically. He's like, how do you make policy changes? Well, you need a pressure group. And it seems like for the right policies, you need the right pressure group and the right pressure group is organized labor. Right. Very technocratic. Yeah. Right. And that's the DSA. I mean, that is, so. It, but he's been by well, And he does that too. though, out of the desire to strengthen the family. And to have a more harmonious, uh, a more harmonious. Sure, life. the workers would be better off if they lived in families. Well, guess what? Um, you know, he's a refugee from the Islamic Republic of Iran. The mullahs in Iran also think it's better for the working class to live in traditional families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they well, have a political solution for how do you achieve that, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. Uh, you know. You could have Islamo fascism, you could have, you know, Catholic fascism. You know, like <laughs> it's like, you know, you could you could have religion, right? Um, so and that's that's probably the easiest way. I mean, you know, the old the old socialist, the old socialist perspective on religion is that religion is the way that the capitalists get the workers to accept discipline. Mm -hmm. So what did you think of um, – uh, maybe I'm changing the topic and I shouldn't, but 
But uh, well, maybe I'll I'll save this for the parent room, because um, I feel like you have more to say about how we should relate to the neoliberalism or the Randian perspective of Malay. So uh, how should a Marxist understand um, this moment where uh, the great capitalists of the world are gathering together to try to implement policy that Malay didn't come right out and call socialism. Maybe he did, but, but that he did. Yeah. 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 And he may have even called it Marxism. Right. So, the, the the great billionaires are implementing Marxism and most of the left, uh, I mean, the dissidents are saying, oh, they are not socialists. They're too rich to be socialists. They're too powerful to be socialists. They're still money grubbers and profiteers at base. Okay. But what you're saying is, well, what we think of as socialism is actually capitalism. Um, and it, mm-hmm. And it isn't, and not everything that's capitalism is done strictly for economic reasons. Right? Well, right, and or at least not for profit motive reasons. It's not as simple as that. I mean, okay, so me watching the Malay, I mean, I, I'm not particularly sympathetic to him. In other words, I thought, okay, you know, here's another right wing guy who wins an election, and the right gets excited about it. But then some rightists are not too excited about it because it seems more like you know, this old style libertarian capitalism, anarcho-capitalism kind of neoliberal kind of thing. Um, You know, I'm sure Tucker Carlson's probably not too happy with Millet. I'm sure Tucker Carlson prefers like Bolsonaro and Victor Orban and those kinds of people rather than uh, Javier Millet. And so, you know, but I, I, you know, I kind of feel like, okay. Who would you rather? I don't really, really, well, I prefer Millet, of course. Um, But yeah, yeah, me too. I, I, I think myself because I'm, I'm like okay does that mean that i'm i'm in the end sort of nostalgic for a kind of neoliberal conversation or something you know the terms of a kind of neoliberal framework now i just felt very simply like if i were in davos if i were in switzerland if i was hanging out if i was at the cocktail parties right mm-hmm. and i'm like hi chris catrone i'm the last marxist maybe you saw my book published by sublation Mm-hmm. You know, we got a table over there in case you're interested, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we should do that. You know, we should I definitely feel like... table Davos. That would be awesome. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Think? right? Mm-hmm. Get Norman Finkelstein to make an appearance. That would be awesome. Um, get Jack Ross to make an appearance next year. Oh, man, man. He, he'd have a meltdown. <laughs> he, 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 he would give them a run for their money if he, if he like, yeah. cornered any of the, you know, like John Kerry you know, and start having a conversation. <laughs> um, you know, they could go for hours. Um, so, um, you know, but I feel like who would I talk to at the cocktail party more productively? Who who would I be more likely to convince of Marxism? Javier Millet. Probably, yeah. I mean, it's not going to be easy no matter who you're talking to, but he would no. have a you, – you could at least um, find points of agreement a little more quickly. Yeah, more easily. Yeah. I could just say, look, Marxists aren't against like capitalist growth and wealth. No, right. right? Um, right. The point is that do we have to pay the price of these recurrent crises and periodic self-destruction of capitalism? Is that is that the price of freedom or is it not, right? Do, do we not mm-hmm. have to pay that price to be free, actually, right? Um, and, you know... And, and freedom is the point. 
and surely wealth, you know, is the key to freedom. Absolutely. I mean, that's where he agrees with the DSA, like a Ben Burgess would say, well, you know, the freedom means like workers having enough wealth to have autonomy in their lives. Okay. Yeah. Right. That would be the Javier Millet desideratum as well. And, um, you know, but again, you know, that I would just say, look, that's not the, that's not the point from a Marxist perspective. I mean, I, I, I would sort of say to him, look, I get what you're saying about socialism. I get it. Like most people who call themselves socialists are just authoritarian statists and they don't believe in freedom. Mm -hmm. I agree. You're right about that. Totally. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, and they need to be stopped. I agree, <laughs> you know, um, and by comparison, yes, you know, capitalist technological innovation, let it rip. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, freedom, damn it. Right. The way he ended his speech, like long live freedom, damn it, which probably sounds <laughs> a lot better in Spanish than it did in English translation. Um, mm -hmm. is probably much, you know, flowed better. And I'm like, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, but how? And also, what about these problems? And is it really just like market correction? You know, is it just mistakes? Is that what we're talking about? You know, um, aren't there structural problems in the economy? And again, that doesn't mean the state's going to come in and solve it. It doesn't, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it does mean, look, that you can't deny that there is this problem. And is right. it going to work itself out in the end if we just like free things up more, if we just have a freer market? You know, probably not. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's hard for us to point to evidence because the state has managed capitalism for the last hundred years, at least. Right. Right. And so that's why that's where it would become impervious. Yeah. But you can you can so, point to the 19th century crisis that happened. You know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. When there was far less control. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like, look, this anarcho-capitalist, like libertarian utopia, fine. And maybe he is saying, like, look, maybe we'll never get that. But those are the values we should pursue. That's what should inform our judgment. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of get it. But again, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to have to convince him that he's just accepting capitalism, but I'd have to convince him that he's accepting all the downsides of capitalism necessarily. And that really, that's just, it's just a rationalization to say, oh, well, that's freedom. That's the price you pay for freedom. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, no, I don't think so. Right. Um, but again, I'm sure that he's someone who doesn't like war. I'm sure he thinks wars are caused by like crony capitalists, like, you know, mm -hmm. with their corrupt, you know, uh, contracts with the state. I'm sure he believes all that, you know, that all the ills yeah. of the world from the state. And there's some truth to that. There is some truth to that. Yeah. Um, but again, like social conditions, in other words, what makes that possible? What makes those things possible? It's not just, bad policy or state power usurpation and corruption. It's not just that. Right. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the harder sell. That is the harder sell. Um, but again, just to say, look, you know, 
I mean, again, could you in a half an hour explain like Marx's value theory? I think you can. I, I think actually so. I think you can. You could say look, crises of value, like this is what happens, you know? Yeah. You mm-hmm. get a crisis between the value of wages and technological production. Right? Right. And that goes beyond a market correction. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that that's that that you can make a plausible case. You know, I think I've always I, I think I've told you this in the past. I'm for like the easy button, you know, like the Staples commercial mm-hmm. where where the people at the office are having some conundrum and then the Staples person comes in with the big red button, the easy button. I'm for the easy <laughs> button when it comes to like understanding Marxism and this kind of stuff. I'm like, right. no, just just take the easy button. <laughs> you know, don't overcomplicate it. Like, yeah, right. I know that history is a thicket of conundrums, but mm. there are some basic things that are actually pretty easy to get across. Um, yeah. Now, how in terms of solving it, no, there's no easy solution there. Um, but again, you know, if it's about like the people having more control over their lives and, you know, the best social and political conditions for doing so, then Marxism agrees that liberal, like, you know, freedom in, in society in everyday life is like not only the way, but is like a value in and of itself. Am I remembering correctly that Rosa Luxemburg critiqued imperialism on the basis that the it was a form of monopoly capitalism that, dysregulated the market and yeah uh yeah and that that was mm-hmm. bad for workers and capitalists both that there wouldn't be the same kind of innovation because of the the monopoly power of the imperial countries and that it was holding back capital's development and with it the development of the working class power is that basically what she yes. said you, yeah yeah <clears throat> and so it's worth noting that she sounds like a anarcho-capitalist it to to our ears, right. maybe you know, and then, right, right. And you have to think like, okay, why would she say that? You know, what what what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so one of the things that I I try to keep reminding myself is that being a Marxist means first not just assuming that I already know what the right answer is to a social problem and that the pro and it certainly means giving up on the idea that what's holding back a solution are some bad guys over here in team red or team blue or, <clears throat> or in some bank mm-hmm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, uh, I wonder about, I was going to ask you before and I'll ask you now and then mm-hmm. maybe we can talk more about it in the parrot room. Cause we're coming up on an hour. Um, but you, you saw the uh, Jack Ross interview slash video essay that I that we put yeah. out. He's, he's got his book, uh, "The Strange Death of American Exceptionalism," coming. Um, what did you make of his view of the historical causes for the successor ideology or this sort of puritanical Davos type? Uh, call it intersectional, or call it just. Uh, puritanical um, moment that we're in. What, what 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 did you think of his ethno-religious story that he told? Um, well, so I haven't read the book yet because right, it's not out right. yet. Um, so I only got this kind of summary version of it. 
And so I don't, I don't have the full contours of the argument, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that Jack Ross is someone who is like, I guess, culturally conservative in mm-hmm. a particular way. Yeah. Right. Um, in other words that he's like an old style socialist, like really old style socialist um, in this sense that capitalism is this bad kind of um, cultural homogenization, you know, sort of antithetical to culture. It's antithetical to culture in the working class. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, you know, replaces like a real culture with like consumer goods. Um, Right. And that that's obviously uh, part of the problem with a kind of PMC kind of technocratic kind of approach to managing capitalism is that it sort of exacerbates that problem. Right. It kind of compounds it. Um, And, you know, so we have to acknowledge that. And I do think that, um, you know, it's kind of like, I'm always reminded, I mentioned this with Sora Bamari at the event that we had last year, last summer in New York, uh, the Danielle Bell, you know, mm-hmm. a socialist in economics, a conservative in culture and a, a liberal in politics. And mm-hmm. that sounds like a great solution, doesn't it? Right. Um, in other words, it sounds like, you know, we want, we want political freedom. We want political liberty. Right. We want the Bill of Rights. We want you know, liberal, uh, a liberal political order. We want like the Bill of Rights, maybe even the Constitution, the checks and balances. We want liberalism like that. We want multi parties. We don't want a party state uh, totalitarianism um, or even a soft version of that, which you get with the New Deal Democrats and who still dominate politics in the United States and have ever since 1934. Um, and uh you know, because our generation, I think that our generation and then the millennials growing up under Bush in their first moment and then with Trump coming back, I think they have this idea that like, I don't know, the Republicans are the dominant party in the United States um, mm. or something. And it's like, no, obviously, the Democrats are the dominant party in the United States and they have been for a very long time. And they govern the vast majority of the population. If you look at municipal politics, you know, I think they mm. govern like 80 percent of the population directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's, um, you know, and we should, we, we should be thankful if there's any opposition at all, right? In other words, like, yeah, the opposition is not great. The Republicans are not great. You know, um, you know, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio are some kind of like Reaganite college Republican creatures, but, you know, I'm kind of glad that they're there to like, ask a question you know and like you know you know like because otherwise what everyone's just going to be patting each other on the back and saying how great everything is right mm-hmm. um and how we're we're always doing the intelligent best thing all the time aren't we mm-hmm. <laughs> right? what do you make of the fact that people say that biden's uh presidency you know is like lbj's and that he is uh, being ruined by his foreign policy is worse but mm. otherwise he would be an extremely popular president because of his that's very the other jack ross that's the other jack ross dimension which is that he's very anti-neocon he's very anti-neocon so he's anti-neoliberal and anti-neocon and i feel mm. like um the article that you guys published in the sublation magazine mm-hmm. you know uh really starts there right it mm-hmm. starts with um, like Tony Jett, 
right? It's it starts with the crisis of neoconservatism that the war on terror revealed, mm -hmm. right? So the war on terror was the bankruptcy of neoconservatism. And then the idea is that the neoconservatives have migrated over to the Democratic Party now. Oh, I think that's right? both true, right? Those things are true. Yeah, enough. those are true. Those are those mm -hmm. are absolutely true. And so those so two major elements are neoconservatism, neoliberalism, both went into crisis. War on terror, Great Recession. Mm -hmm. Well, that leaves the Christian right standing, right? And kind of standing, teetering, you know, like Karl mm -hmm. Rove and, mm -hmm. and George W. Bush were like yucking it up. They're like, yeah, you know, these Christian fundamentalists, we can count on their vote. We only have to pay lip service. We don't have to actually do anything, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And surely Trump agrees with that that all he has to do is pay lip service. Well, he did uh, he more than that accidentally. Accidentally though, right? And then he's like yeah. regretful, right? Although <laughs> now he will, he will own it. He will say, well, I gave you overthrowing Roe versus Wade and don't squander it by being too extreme, right? Make sure mm -hmm. that you paint your opponents mm -hmm. as the extreme. And yes, we might have to accept abortion, you know, uh, because for political reasons, because you have to get votes. Right. And so I think that that's preferable to something leaking out of private conversations in the White House. I think it's preferable to have a politician just say somebody has to represent the anti-abortion position. It is a large constituency, but it's at a bargaining table and the anti-abortion people have to give up some things, too. <laughs> right. So, Like, you know, I mean, isn't that like just rational at some level? And yes, I mean, I, I, I am a liberal on these things. I do think abortion rights, you know, the people, it should not, it should not really be. The state should not. I do believe in that. But mm. the political reality of capitalist politics is you're going to throw some, you know, nominal regulations. In other words, how many people get abortions after 15 weeks? Very few. You know, and so partial birth abortion and all this stuff, it's just such a such a small phenomenon that like obviously it's demagogued. Obviously it's it's whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but do you need like a law to regulate that? No. Yeah, but you then know, neocons um uh um, uh moved to the Democratic Party and uh, the neoliberalism went into crisis as well. That's just to go back, Jack. That's Jack Ross's starting point. You were saying, not. Yes. I just don't want to get diverted down onto. And it. that's the millennial left starting point. I mean, he is a quintessential millennial leftist that way, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's good that he's not losing sight of the neocon element, right? But to get mm -hmm. back to it, then, in terms of Biden, I mean, look, you know, from our many conversations that last fall on the Gaza war, you mm -hmm. know that I refuse to adopt a simplistic. Uh, characterization of the Biden administration. Uh, in other words, I don't think the U.S. government in general, nor do I think the Biden administration in particular, um, are simply pro-Israel. They're not. Right. In other words, they're not happy with Netanyahu, with his policies. They're not happy with aggressive settling on the West Bank. They're not happy with the conduct of the Gaza war. They clearly are not. Like, they obviously are not. And I, again, I'm a watcher of Fox News, so I see all the right-wing people saying how Biden is selling out Israel. Mm -hmm. They are less wrong than 
the left saying that Biden is just providing ideological cover for genocide. In other words, the left saying that Biden is providing, like, is doing token criticism of Israel to provide ideological cover for genocide, that is completely wrong. And when the right says that Biden is selling out Israel, it's partially wrong. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, I just feel like, you know, I, I, I don't believe that Biden's being done in on right-wing foreign policy. Um, I don't. I mean, obviously, that's a certain kind of narcissism of the millennials and the Zoomers who think that they're very important. I don't think that this election will be decided out of youth disaffection for Biden over Palestine. I do not. I've heard an argument that they will be consequential. Do you want to hear what it is? It's from Robert Wright. Oh, really? Yeah. From the past, Labor Secretary of Bill Clinton. No, no. Um, Robert Wright, former uh, editor at the New. Oh Republic. no, Robin Wright, you mean? Uh, I misheard no. you. I thought you said Robert Wright. You said no, Robin Wright. Wright, not Robert Wright. Um, not is it Robin Wright? Wright? Uh, no, Robin? I think it's Robert Wright. Uh, he's he yeah, Robert Wright. Oh, okay. He's a he's the former head of Blogging Heads, former head of the former editor in chief of the yeah. New Republic. Friends uh-huh. with Mickey Kaus. Mickey Kaus, also a former New Republic um, editor, wrote a book about um, social inequality back in the late 70s or, or in the 80s that uh-huh. Christopher Lash footnotes. Uh, so it was mm-hmm. kind of fun. It was really funny to me when I was reading The Revolt of the Elites, and there's a citation of Mickey Kaus, who I'm watching on YouTube weekly now. So it's kind right. of like, oh, this is, I'm actually in a, this is, yeah, history and today. Um, yep. Yeah, right, right. But anyway, so Robert Wright, a blogging, formerly of Blogging Heads TV, of the non-zero newsletter, boy, I'm promoting you. You could go sign up for his Substack. Anyway, um, he says that while the in terms of votes, the youth vote probably won't be consequential in the election, like directly young people not voting for Biden, not right. consequential. In terms of organizing to get votes... Mm. Young, young people's disaffection. Yes, that will be consequential. So it will hurt the machine's ability to operate for the young, you know, energetic activists not to be there to go out and canvas and organize for Biden. And literally get people to the polling station or get them to fill out their absentee ballots or mail-in ballots. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that could be consequential. Um, And, 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 you know, and also, uh, if you don't have that youthful activist group out there pushing for Biden, you're, the whole campaign kind of, I think, loses energy in, in the process. I mean, let me, let, me offer, let me offer this. Okay. He might have lost that without the Gaza War. If the Gaza War had never happened, he might have lost it anyway. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I, I think but it would have been quiet. It would have been yeah, just it would have been passive. Yeah, there would have, wouldn't have been like a reason for it, right? right? They, there and, would have been, but they, but no one would have expressed it. Yeah, when the reason for it would be that that the the, the the things that they wanted solved with Bernie weren't solved by the most progressive president, president in, US in history. history. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. No, I mean LG, LBJ was more progressive than FDR. That's true. Mm-hmm. 
And Nixon right. was even more progressive than LBJ. Yep. That's true as yep. well. Yep. We have clean um, water in Portland so because of Nixon. Yeah. And um, also Richard Nixon was the anti-war candidate in 1968. Right. No, seriously. I know. No, we can't I know. We can't do we can't do the Orwellian we can't go with the boomers own Orwellian revision of history. Nixon Why not? It's so easy, war. Chris. <laughs> no, you, we just can't accept any of these narratives. Zero. Okay. Not at all. You know right? what I'm you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, yes, right. but the limits that were imposed on the debate were so strict that he was an anti-war candidate the way that Obama was. Not really. Uh, he was a uh, for. But he, he actually did end the war in Vietnam. He did. Yeah. That's no, true. he really did. And the Democrats would not have been able to. And why would the Democrats not have been able to? Because they wouldn't have been able to do the triangulation with China. and Because that, that's really what ended it. Right. Right. Well, yeah. Right? So, I mean, yeah, I do think that, um, look, well, let me just say one thing about, no, I'll tell you what, why don't we pick this up in the, in the parrot room? I do, I, I'll, I'll say a couple things. One, I want to talk a little more about this ethno-religious um, explanation for so politics. Yeah, we can talk more about that, but let me just like follow through the thought, which yeah. is that it, it the the Democrats' new narrative is that it's Christian fascism, right? And in other words, they kind of had that in 2016. They didn't have it as much in 2020. They definitely have it now. In other words, like Trump, the explanation for Trump is Christian fascism. And I'm just that was like, the explanation uh, for George W. Bush too, right? Sure. That, I yeah. mean, not in 2000 so much, but subsequently. You know, yeah. I mean, they had a little bit of that, but um, so I just think that this kind of the third leg of the Reaganite coalition, the evangelical Christian vote, mm -hmm. right? So if it was brain trusted by neoliberals and neoconservatives it was affected by mobilizing the, the Christian right evangelical vote, which previously, like the other two elements, were part of the Democratic Party. So the evangelicals right. were in the New Deal coalition, the neoliberals and the neoconservatives are both coming from the Democrats mm -hmm. over to the Republicans. So the new right is new because they're picking up new, new brain trusts, new intellectuals, new policies, and a new voting block, mm -hmm. right? And they also get the Dixiecrats, of course, but the Dixiecrats happens with Nixon. It doesn't happen with Reagan. That, that already had, had happened. But Reagan gets these others. Right. Um, and so that third leg of the, dry, of the tripod, the Christian right, is more ambiguous, right? Because um, I don't think that Trump represents that. You know, there have been other candidates that have represented that, like Ted Cruz in 2016 or Tim Scott or Mike Pence in, in 2023, 20, mm -hmm. 2024. There have been other candidates for that. And I think that the devil's bargain, so to speak, you know, that's made with the evangelicals and Trump is that, you know, he needs them. They need him. And it's a marriage of convenience. You know, and I, I also think that it actually shows how thin 
uh, Christian evangelism is as a political force. In other words, that it's not some deeply rooted conservative obstacle to progress, right? That to satisfy it doesn't take very much, right? For the Republicans to win that vote and for that vote to feel satisfied doesn't take that much, um, especially relative to the way the Democrats push things. In other words, we talked about this before about um, Pat Robertson saying, well, we no longer want to put gays to death. We just don't want to be forced to bake them cupcakes, Right. In other words, like if the Republicans are the candidate that if their candidates are the ones who are like, we have to accept gay marriage, but we're not going to force you and your mom and pop bakery to bake cupcakes for gay people if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like that's Christian fascism. But, you know, I know with the, the you know, you're in Portland, Oregon. So I know that like people go into a coffee shop and someone says something rude to them and they say you're a fascist. Right. So like, not really. I mean, I know it doesn't take much for someone to be fascist. Right. If you get cut off on the road. My opinion about the gay, the gay wedding cake or the gay cupcakes or whatever is that. Right. You know, it actually is a kind of a flip of a coin as to whose rights are going to take precedence in that moment. Do you have the right to free expression? Do they have the right to. Uh, for, to express themselves and have practice their religion or uh, actually when I, uh, you know, like, um, and when I say religion, I mean the gay people's right to have a wedding ceremony, but, but like, do, sure, do, sure. Who, who's right is going to win out? Cause they're in conflict between two, two people. So I'll go there. back and, to William F. Buckley. I'll go back to William F. Buckley and his debate at the Cambridge um, union with uh um, God, how am I forgetting his name? Um, I know I, uh, uh, it was it, uh, CLR James. No, um, it's not CLR it? James. It's I'm not no. your Negro. Um, how am I forgetting his name? We will definitely cut this. This black gay easy. author, black gay yeah. author, big time. But anyway, uh, um, his debate about like the civil rights movement and the, the, LBJ reforms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that you can't legislate morality. James, James Baldwin. And let's just take James it again. Baldwin. You know, because I was like, <laughs> it's not James Joyce. It's James. No, you know, no. In my mind, you know, James Baldwin could be James. But look, Joyce, I said not. CLR James, you know. <laughs> yeah, CLR James. And I was like, James <laughs> Joyce. No, that's not it. Uh, James Baldwin. Okay. Oh, oh, okay, so go back to William F. Buckley's. Just stay, start from there. Say, let's go back to William F. Buckley's. Yeah, really so I go back to I go back to William F. Buckley and his debate with James Baldwin at the Cambridge uh, Student Union. I think in this mid sixties, it's LBJ's reforms, and William F. Buckley's like, look, I'm against racism, but you can't legislate morality. You can't legislate attitudes. You can't force people not to be racist. I think that's true. In other words, I think that the idea that the government is going to say that a restaurant has to serve black people. I don't know about that one. Right. In other words, I feel like, is that the government's role? And anyway, is the civil rights movement like was the civil rights movement? What was that about? The Montgomery bus boycott or the sit-ins, you know, at the lunch counters 
isn't that about civil social action? Isn't that about showing, look, you know, you mm-hmm. can desegregate the lunch counter? Is it is it about the state? Is it about the government? Do we need the government to do that? Well, it was about the police not um, arresting enforcing you for the it. law. Yeah. You know? Well, you know what the law was? The law was not... I don't think that the law was like it's illegal to sit at a segregated lunch counter. It was disturbing the peace. In other words, it, no, was, it was literally... Like, trespass. Right? You, it's you, trespass you, because... The, they, the owner of the establishment has the right to ask you to leave. Period. Right. And if you... And no, I just feel like, trespass. you know, old-style socialism... I go back to Eugene Debs. Mm-hmm. Right? He's like... Um, look, racism is wrong. Segregation is wrong. He refused to speak to segregated crowds. But mm-hmm. he's like, you know, is the goal of black people to be accepted by white people? Maybe not. And he said, like, look, when I look at these crackers, you know, Eugene Debs was like, when I look at these white people, I'm like, you know, black people shouldn't want their their approval or their acceptance. <laughs> right? Like, you know, what are you talking about, you know? Um, and so, you know, again, we've naturalized certain things that we shouldn't naturalize. Mm-hmm. And we, do, we, have, we have given to the state a role and an initiative that it should not have. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a mixed mind. So the lunch counters in particular, that example is one where my anarchist anti-statism which I can totally understand reasonably, you know, it sort of cracks a little. I'm not, I'm not so sure. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I'm just going to say Adolf Reed. Adolf Reed is like, look, the state came in and formalized and legalized what was happening anyway, meaning society right. was being desegregated by capitalism. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was like this cultural strife, but the idea that you actually needed the law and the police to fight racism that that is the succumbing of the movement to the state. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a basic point. It's very difficult somehow for, I think it's going to be very difficult. That one more than the climate change one. I mean, here's the difficulty. Who is Petit Bourgeois? Former Democrats to accept, I think it's yeah, Yeah, because they they want the police to beat up their racist uncle or something. I mean, what I would say is this: that you know, it 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 comes down to a very basic thing, um, which is the law is not morality. How about that Mm -hmm. one? We talked about Mm -hmm. that a few weeks ago. You know, in other words, the right the right of the guilty to not be prosecuted, like people who are actually guilty not to be prosecuted. But also, do we want the law to satisfy our moral sentiments? In other words, in, do we want our moral sentiments to be officially instituted by law? Because that's what the right wing people want. In other words, they think abortion is morally wrong. And they think the way you show that it's morally wrong is to have a law against it. They know people are still going to get abortions. They know it's still right. going to go back alley abortions and underground. They know it's still going to happen. They know the rich people are still going to get abortions. They just want the law to officially state that something is immoral. They know people are going to have gay sex. Like when when gay sex was illegal, 
they knew it wasn't stopping people from having sex, but they thought that the law should officially declare the morality of the community. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. <laughs> That's not what the law is for. The law right. is not to show moral approval or disapproval. No. I mean, that's where we have to go back to old style bourgeois. Like fewer laws right. are better, right? Less of a state is better, right? Less things for the police to arrest you for is better. Right. You know? The police not being there is better. Right. Yeah. So the laws are on the books, but they're not being enforced because the police aren't everywhere to enforce them. That's better. <laughs> right. 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 <clears throat> yeah. It's not morality. Yeah. It's not morality. If we need the police to enforce morality, then we don't really have morality, do we? No. And that, right. I agree. And and it when you have to have the police to enforce uh, morality, civility. Um, right. You you're living in chaos. Yeah, you're That's living when, in a when, social when you, breakdown. You want a good sign that things are breaking down, and you should probably get out of the get out of there. The cops are showing right. up. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, know? you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so I feel like, look, the civil rights movement—they knew exactly what they were doing. You know, Bayard Rustin, Martin Luther King—they knew what they were doing. They also knew what they were not doing. And you know, they were—you know—trying to bear moral witness. They were trying to influence popular opinion but not just to force the state's hand. That's not what they were doing, right? Right. They, they were trying to affect social change. And mm. the fact that that became a kind of political, legal, state, bureaucratic, technocratic fix is, is tragic, right? Because then it's right. set up white people to resent, right? White people are like, oh, I'm being forced to not be a racist, like, you know, they're going to punish me by law mm-hmm. because of my thoughts and feelings, right? right? It's a setup, right? And the right yeah. wing is there to say it turned black people into wards of the state. And they're right, right about perf- that. Yeah, it's perfect way to end it. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>